Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Tonight, I continue the story, The Yosemite, by John Muir. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. The Nevada Fall The Nevada Fall is 600 feet high and is usually ranked next to the Yosemite in general interest among the five main falls of the valley. Coming through the Little Yosemite in tranquil reaches, the river is first broken into rapids on a moraine boulder bar that crosses the lower end of the valley. Thence, it pursues its way to the head of the fall in a rough, solid rock channel dashing on side angles, heaving in heavy, surging masses against the elbow knobs, and swirling and swashing in potholes without a moment's rest. Thus, already chafed and dashed to foam, overfolded and twisted, it plunges over the brink of the precipice as if glad to escape into the open air. But before it reaches the bottom, it is pulverized yet finer, by impinging upon a sloping portion of the cliff about halfway down, thus making it the whitest of all the falls of the valley and altogether one of the most wonderful in the world. On the north side, close to its head, a slab of granite projects over the brink, forming a fine point for a view over its throng of streamers and while plunging into its intensely white bosom and through the broad drifts of spray to the far river below gathering its spent waters and rushing on again down the canyon in glad exultation into Emerald Pool, where at length it grows calm and gets rest for what still lies before it. All the features of the view correspond with the waters in grandeur and wildness. The glacier-sculpted walls of the canyon on either hand, with the sublime mass of the glacier point ridge in front, form a huge triangular pit-like basin which, filled with the roaring of the falling river, seems as if it might be the hopper of one of the mills of the gods in which the mountains were being ground. The Vernal Fall The Vernal, about a mile below the Nevada, is 400 feet high, a staid, orderly, graceful, easygoing fall, 
proper and exact in every movement and gesture, with scarce a hint of the passionate enthusiasm of the Yosemite or of the impetuous Nevada, whose chafed and twisted waters, hurrying over the cliff, seem glad to escape into the open air, while its deep, booming thundertones reverberate over the listening landscape. Nevertheless, it is a favorite with most visitors, doubtless because it is more accessible than any other, more closely approached and better seen and heard. A good stairway ascends the cliff beside it, and the level plateau at the head enables one to saunter safely along the edge of the river as it comes from Emerald Pool and to watch its waters calmly bending over the brow of the precipice in a sheet 80 feet wide, changing in color from green to purplish gray and white until dashed on a boulder talus. Thence, issuing from beneath its fine, broad spray clouds, we see the tremendously adventurous river still unspent, beating its way down the wildest and deepest of all its canyons in grey roaring rapids, dare to the Ouzel, and below the confluence of the Lillouette, sweeping around the shoulder of the half-dome on its approach to the head of the tranquil levels of the valley. The Illilouette Fall The Illilouette, in general appearance, most resembles the Nevada. The volume of water is less than half as great, but it is about the same height, 600 feet, and its waters receive the same kind of preliminary tossing in a rocky, irregular channel. Therefore it is a very white and fine-grained fall. When it is in full springtime bloom, it is partly divided by rocks that roughen the lip of the precipice, but this division amounts only to a kind of fluting and grooving of the column, which has a beautiful effect. It is not nearly so grand a fall as the upper Yosemite, or so symmetrical as the vernal, or so airily graceful and simple as the bridal veil, nor does it ever display so tremendous an outgush or snowy magnificence as Nevada, but in the exquisite fineness and richness of texture of its flowing folds, it surpasses them all. One of the finest effects of sunlight on falling water I ever saw in Yosemite or elsewhere I found on the brow of this beautiful fall. It was in the Indian summer when the leaf colors were ripe and the great cliffs and domes were transfigured in the hazy golden air. I had scrambled up its rugged, talus-dammed canyon, oftentimes stopping to take breath and look back to admire the wonderful views to be had there of the great half-dome, and to enjoy the extreme purity of the water, which in the motionless pools on this stream is almost perfectly invisible. The coloured foliage of the maples, dogwoods, rubus tangles, etc., and the late goldenrods and asters. The voice of the fall was now low, and the grand spring and summer floods had waned to sifting, drifting gauze and thin broidered folds of linked and arrowy lacework. When I reached the foot of the fall, sunbeams were glinting across its head, leaving all the rest of it in shadow, and on its illumined brow a group of young spangles of singular form and beauty were playing, flashing up and dancing in large, flame-shaped masses, wavering at times, then steadying, rising and falling in accord with the shifting forms of the water. But the colour of the dancing spangles changed, not at all. Nothing in clouds or flowers, on bird wings, or the lips of shells, 
could rival it in fineness. It was the most divinely beautiful mass of rejoicing yellow light I ever beheld, one of nature's precious gifts that perchance may come to us but once in a lifetime. The Minor Falls There are many other comparatively small falls and cascades in the valley. The most notable are the Yosemite Gorge Fall and Cascades, Tanaya Fall and Cascades, Royal Arch Falls, the two Sentinel Cascades, and the falls of Cascade and Tamarack Creeks, a mile or two below the lower end of the valley. These last are often visited. The others are seldom noticed or mentioned, although in almost any other country they would be visited and described as wonders. The six intermediate falls in the gorge between the head of the lower and the base of the upper Yosemite Falls, separated by a few deep pools and strips of rapids, and three slender tributary cascades on the west side, form a series more strikingly varied and combined than any other in the valley. Yet very few of all the valley visitors ever see them or hear of them. No available standpoint commands a view of them all. The best general view is obtained from the mouth of the gorge near the head of the lower fall. The two lowest of the series, together with one of the three tributary cascades, are visible from this standpoint. But in reaching it, the last 20 or 30 feet of the descent is rather dangerous in time of high water, the shelving rocks being then slippery on account of spray. But if one should chance to slip when the water is low, only a bump or two and a harmless splash would be the penalty. No part of the gorge, however, is safe to any but cautious climbers. Though the deep gorge hall of these rejoicing waters is never flushed by the purple light of morning or evening, it is warmed and cheered by the white light of noonday, which, falling into so much foam and spray of varying degrees of fineness, makes marvellous displays of rainbow colours. So filled indeed is it with this precious light, at favourable times, it seems to take the place of common air. Laurel bushes shed fragrance into it from above, and live oaks, those fearless mountaineers, hold fast to angular seams and lean out over it with their fringing sprays and bright mirror leaves. One bird, the ouzel, loves this gorge and flies through it merrily, or cheerily rather, stopping to sing on foam-washed bosses where other birds could find no rest for their feet. I've even seen a grey squirrel down in the heart of it, beside the wild rejoicing water. One of my favourite night walks was along the rim of this wild gorge in times of high water, when the moon was full, to see the lunar boughs in the spray. For about a mile above Mirror Lake, the Tanaya Canyon is level and richly planted with fir, Douglas spruce and Libracedrus, forming a remarkably fine grove, at the head of which is the Tanaya Fall. Though seldom seen or described, this is, I think, the most picturesque of all the small falls. A considerable distance above it, Tanaya Creek comes hurrying down, white and foamy, over a flat pavement inclined at an angle of about 18 degrees. In time of high water, this sheet of rapids is nearly 70 feet wide and is varied in a very striking way by three parallel furrows that extend in the direction of its flow. These furrows, worn by the action of the stream upon cleavage joints, vary in width, are slightly sinuous, 
and have large boulders firmly wedged in them here and there in narrow places, giving rise, of course, to a complicated series of wild dashes, doublings, and upleaping arches in the swift torrent. Just before it reaches the head of the fall, the current is divided, the left division making a vertical drop of about 80 feet in a romantic, leafy, flowery, mossy nook, while the other forms a rugged cascade. The Royal Arch Fall in time of high water is a magnificent object, forming a broad ornamental sheet in front of the arches. The two sentinel cascades, 3,000 feet high, are also grand spectacles when the snow is melting fast in the spring. But by the middle of summer, they've diminished to mere streaks, scarce noticeable amid their sublime surroundings. The Beauty of the Rainbows The Bridal Vale and the Vernal Falls are famous for their rainbows, and special visits to them are often made when the sun shines into the spray at the most favourable angle. But amid the spray and foam and fine ground mist, ever rising from the various falls and cataracts, there is an affluence and variety of iris bows, scarcely known to visitors who stay only a day or two. Both day and night, winter and summer, this divine light may be seen wherever water is falling, dancing, singing, telling the heart peace of nature amid the wildest displays of her power. In the bright spring mornings, the black-walled recess at the foot of the lower Yosemite Fall is lavishly fine with irised spray. And not simply does this span the dashing foam, but the foam itself, the whole mass of it, beheld at a certain distance, seems to be coloured and drips and wavers from colour to colour, mingling with the foliage of the adjacent trees, without suggesting any relationship to the ordinary rainbow. This is perhaps the largest and most reservoir-like fountain of iris colours to be found in the valley. Lunar rainbows, or spray bows, also abound in the glorious affluence of dashing, rejoicing, hurrahing, enthusiastic spring floods, their colours distinct as those of the sun, and regularly and obviously banded, though less vivid. Fine specimens may be found any night at the foot of the upper Yosemite Fall, glowing gloriously amid the gloomy shadows and thundering waters, whenever there is plenty of moonlight and spray. Even the secondary bow is at times distinctly visible. The best point from which to observe them is on Fern Ledge. For some time after moonrise, at time of high water, the arc has a span of about 500 feet and is set upright, one end planted in the boiling spray at the bottom, the other in the edge of the fall, creeping lower, of course, and becoming less upright as the moon rises higher. This grand arc of colour, glowing in mild, shapely beauty, in so weird and huge a chamber of night shadows, and amid the rush and roar and tumultuous dashing of this thunder-voiced fall, is one of the most impressive and most cheering of all the blessed mountain evangels. Smaller bows may be seen in the gorge and the plateau between the upper and lower falls. Once toward midnight, after spending a few hours with the wild beauty of the upper fall, I sauntered along the edge of the gorge, looking in here and there, wherever the footing felt safe, to see what I could learn of the night aspects of the smaller falls that dwell there. And down in an exceedingly black, pit-like portion of the gorge, at the foot of the highest of the intermediate falls, into which the moonbeams were pouring through a narrow opening, 
I saw a well-defined spray bow, beautifully distinct in colors, spanning the pit from side to side, while pure white foam waves beneath the beautiful bow were constantly springing up out of the dark into the moonlight like dancing ghosts. An unexpected adventure. A wild scene, but not a safe one, is made by the moon as it appears through the edge of the Yosemite Fall when one is behind it. Once, after enjoying the night song of the waters and watching the formation of the colored bow as the moon came round the domes and sent her beams into the wild uproar, I ventured out on the narrow bench that extends back of the fall from Fernledge and began to admire the dim-veiled grandeur of the view. I could see the fine gauzy threads of the fall's filmy border by having the light in front and wishing to look at the moon through the meshes of some of the denser portions of the fall. I ventured to creep farther behind it while it was gently wind-swayed without taking sufficient thought about the consequences of its swaying back to its natural position after the wind pressure should be removed. The effect was enchanting. Fine, savage music sounding above, beneath, around me, while the moon, apparently in the very midst of the rushing waters, seemed to be struggling to keep her place on account of the ever-varying form and density of the water masses through which she was seen, now darkly veiled or eclipsed by a rush of thick-headed comets, now flashing out through openings between their tails. I was in fairyland between the dark wall and the wild throng of illumined waters, but suffered sudden disenchantment, for like the witch scene in Alloway Kirk, in an instant all was dark. Down came a dash of spent comets, thin and harmless-looking in the distance, but they felt desperately solid and stony when they struck my shoulders, like a mixture of choking spray and gravel and big hailstones. Instinctively, dropping on my knees, I gripped an angle of the rock, curled up like a young fern frond with my face pressed against my breast, and in this attitude, submitted as best I could to my thundering bath. The heavier masses seemed to strike like cobblestones, and there was a confused noise of many waters about my ears, hissing, gurgling, clashing sounds that were not heard as music. The situation was quickly realized. How fast one's thoughts burn in such times of stress. I was weighing chances of escape. Would the column be swayed a few inches away from the wall, or would it come yet closer? The fall was in flood, and not so lightly would its ponderous mass be swayed. My fate seemed to depend on a breath of the idle wind. It was moved gently forward, the pounding ceased, and I was once more visited by glimpses of the moon. But fearing I might be caught at a disadvantage in making too hasty a retreat, I moved only a few feet along the bench to where a block of ice lay. I wedged myself between the ice and the wall and lay face downwards until the steadiness of the light gave encouragement to rise and get away. Somewhat nerve-shaken, drenched and benumbed, I made out to build a fire, warmed myself, ran home, reached my cabin before daylight, got an hour or two of sleep, and awoke sound and comfortable, better, not worse, for my hard midnight bath. Climate and Weather Owing to the westerly trend of the valley and its vast depth, 
there's a great difference between the climates of the north and south sides, greater than between many countries far apart. For the south wall is in shadow during the winter months, while the north is bathed in sunshine every clear day. Thus, there is a mild spring weather on one side of the valley, while winter rules the other. Far up the north side cliffs, many a nook may be found closely embraced by sudden beaten rock bosses in which flowers bloom every month of the year. Even butterflies may be seen in these high winter gardens, except when snowstorms are falling and a few days after they have ceased. Near the head of the lower Yosemite Fall in January, I found the ant lions lying in wait in their warm sand cups, rock ferns being unrolled, club mosses covered with fresh growing plants the flowers of the laurel nearly open, and the honeysuckle rosetted with bright young leaves. Every plant seemed to be thinking about summer. Even on the shadow side of the valley, the frost is never very sharp. The lowest temperature I ever observed during four winters was 7 degrees Fahrenheit. The first 24 days of January had an average temperature at 9 a.m. of 32 degrees, minimum 22 degrees. At 3 p.m., the average was 40 degrees the minimum, 32 degrees. Along the top of the walls, 7,000 and 8,000 feet high, the temperature was, of course, much lower. But the difference in temperature between the north and south sides is due not so much to the winter sunshine as to the heat of the preceding summer stored up in the rocks, which rapidly melts the snow in contact with them. For those summer, sun heat is stored in the rocks of the south side also, The amount is much less because the rays fall obliquely on the south wall even in summer and almost vertically on the north. The upper branches of the Yosemite streams are buried every winter beneath a heavy mantle of snow and set free in the spring in magnificent floods. Then all the fountains, full and overflowing, every living thing breaks forth into singing and the glad, exulting streams shining and falling in the warm, sunny weather shake everything into music, making all the mountain world a song. The great annual spring thaw usually begins in May in the forest region and in June and July on the High Sierra, varying somewhat both in time and fullness with the weather and the depth of the snow. Toward the end of summer, the streams are at their lowest ebb, few even of the strongest singing much above a whisper. They slip and ripple through gravel and boulder beds from pool to pool in the hollows of their channels and drop in pattering showers like rain and slip down precipices and fall in sheets of embroidery fold over fold. But however low they're singing, it is always ineffably fine in tone, in harmony with the restful time of the year. The first snow of the season that comes to the help of the streams usually falls in September or October, sometimes even as the latter part of August in the midst of the yellow Indian summer, when the goldenrods and the gentians of the glacier meadows are in their prime. This Indian summer snow, however, soon melts. The chilled flowers spread their petals in the sun, and the gardens as well as the streams are refreshed, as if only a warm shower had fallen. The snowstorms that load the mountains to form the main fountain supply for the year seldom set in before the middle or end of November. Winter Beauty of the Valley When the first heavy storm stopped work on the high mountains, I made haste down to my Yosemite den, not to hole up and sleep the white months away, 
I was out every day, and often all night, sleeping but little, studying the so-called wonders and common things ever on show, wading, climbing, sauntering among the blessed storms and calms, rejoicing in almost everything alike that I could see or hear, the glorious brightness of frosty mornings, the sunbeams pouring over the white domes and crags into the groves and waterfalls, kindling marvelous iris fires in the hoarfrost and spray, the great forests and mountains in their deep noon sleep, the goodnight glow, the stars, the solemn-gazing moon drawing the huge domes and headlands, one by one, glowing white out of the shadows, hushed and breathless, like an audience in awful enthusiasm, while the meadows at their feet sparkle with frost stars like the sky, the sublime darkness of storm nights when all the lights are out, the clouds in whose depths the frail snowflowers grow, the behavior of many voices of the different kinds of storms, trees, birds, waterfalls, and snow avalanches in the ever-changing weather. Every clear, frosty morning, loud sounds were heard booming and reverberating from side to side of the valley at intervals of a few minutes, beginning soon after sunrise and continuing in an hour or two like a thunderstorm. In my first winter in the valley, I could not make out the source of this noise. I thought of falling boulders, rock blasting, etc. Not till I saw what looked like hoarfrost dropping from the side of the fall was the problem explained. The strange thunder is made by the fall of sections of ice formed of spray that is frozen on the face of the cliff along the sides of the upper Yosemite fan, a sort of crystal plaster a foot or two thick, wrapped off by the sunbeams, awakening all of the valley like cock crowing, announcing the finest weather, shouting aloud nature's infinite industry and love of hard work in creating beauty. Exploring an Ice Cone This frozen spray gives rise to one of the most interesting water features of the valley, a cone of ice at the foot of the fall, four or five hundred feet high. From the fern ledge standpoint, its crater-like throat is seen, down which the fall plunges with deep, gasping explosions of compressed air, and, after being well-churned in the wormy interior, the water burst forth through arched openings at its base, apparently scourged and weary and glad to escape, while belching spray spouted up out of the throat past the descending current is wafted away in irised drifts to the adjacent rocks and groves. It is built during the night and early hours of the morning. Only in spells of exceptionally cold and cloudy weather is the work continued through the day. The greater part of the spray material falls in crystalline showers direct to its place, something like a small local snowstorm, but a considerable portion is first frozen on the face of the cliff along the sides of the fall and stays there until expanded and cracked off in irregular masses, some of them tons in weight, to be built into the walls of the cone, while in windy, frosty weather, when the fall is swayed from side to side, the cone is well drenched, and the loose ice masses and spray dust are all firmly welded and frozen together. Thus, the finest of the downy wafts and curls of spray dust, which in mild nights fall about as silently as dew, are held back until sunrise to make a store of heavy ice to reinforce the waterfall's thundertones. While the cone is in process of formation, growing higher and wider in the frosty weather, 
It looks like a beautiful, smooth, pure white hill. But when it is wasting and breaking up in the spring, its surface is strewn with leaves, pine branches, stones, sand, etc., that have been brought over the fall, making it look like a heap of avalanche detritus. Anxious to learn what I could about the structure of this curious hill, I often approached it in calm weather and tried to climb it, carrying an axe to cut steps, once I nearly succeeded in gaining the summit. At the base, I was met by a current of spray and wind that made seeing and breathing difficult. I pushed on backward, however, and soon gained the slope of the hill, whereby creeping close to the surface, most of the choking blast passed over me, and I managed to climb up with but little difficulty. Thus I made my way nearly to the summit, halting at times to peer up through the wild whirls of spray, at the veiled grandeur of the fall, or to listen to the thunder beneath me. The whole hill was sounding as if it were a huge bellowing drum. I hoped that by waiting until the fall was blown aslant, I should be able to climb to the lip of the crater and get a view of the interior. But a suffocating blast, half air, half water, followed by the fall of an enormous mass of frozen spray from a spot high up on the wall, quickly discouraged me. The whole cone was jarred by the blow, and some fragments of the mass sped past me dangerously near. So I beat a hasty retreat, chilled and drenched, and lay down on a sunny rock to dry. Once, during a windstorm, when I saw that the fall was frequently blown westward, leaving the cone dry, I ran up to Fern Ledge, hoping to gain a clear view of the interior. I set out at noon. All the way up, the storm notes were so loud about me that the voice of the fall was almost drowned by them. Notwithstanding the rocks and bushes everywhere were drenched by the wind-driven spray, I approached the brink of the precipice, overlooking the mouth of the ice cone, but I was almost suffocated by the drenching, gusty spray and was compelled to seek shelter. I searched for some hiding place in the wall from whence I might run out at some opportune moment when the fall, with its whirling spray and torn shreds of comet tails and trailing tattered skirts, was borne westward, as I had seen it carried several times before, leaving the cliffs on the east side and the ice hill bare in the sunlight. I had not long to wait for, as if ordered so for my special accommodation, the mighty downrush of comets with their whirling drapery swung westward and remained slant for nearly half an hour. The cone was admirably lighted and deserted by the water, which fell most of the time on the rocky western slopes, mostly outside of the cone. The mouth into which the fall pours was, as near as I could guess, about 100 feet in diameter, north and south, and about 200 feet east and west, which is about the shape and size of the fall at its best in its normal condition at this season. The crater-like opening was not a true oval, but more like a huge, coarse mouth. I could see down the throat about 100 feet or perhaps further. The fall precipice overhangs from a height of 400 feet above the base. Therefore, the water strikes some distance from the base off the cliff, allowing space for the accumulation of a considerable mass of ice between the fall and the wall. Winter Storms and Spring Floods The Bridal Veil and the Upper Yosemite Falls, on account of their height and exposure, are greatly influenced by winds. 
The common summer winds that come up the river canyon from the plains are seldom very strong. But the north winds do some very wild work, worrying the falls and the forests, and hanging snow banners on the comet peaks. One wild winter morning, I was awakened by storm wind that was playing with the falls as if they were mere wisps of mist, and making the great pines bow and sing with glorious enthusiasm. The valley had been visited a short time before by a series of fine snowstorms, and the floor and the cliffs and all the region round about were lavishly adorned with its best winter jewellery. The air was full of fine snow dust, and pine branches, tassels, and empty cones were flying in an almost continuous flock. Soon after sunrise, when I was seeking a place safe from flying branches, I saw the lower Yosemite fall thrashed and pulverized from top to bottom into one glorious mass of rainbow dust, while a thousand feet above it, the main upper fall was suspended on the face of the cliff in the form of an inverted bow all silvery white and fringed with short wavering strips. Then, suddenly assailed by a tremendous blast, the whole mass of the fall was blown into thread and ribbons and driven back over the brow of the cliff whence it came, as if it denied admission to the valley. This kind of storm work was continued about ten or fifteen minutes. Then another change in the play of the huge exulting swirls and billows and upheaving domes of the gale allowed the baffled fall to gather and arrange its tattered waters and sink down again in its place. As the day advanced, the gale gave no sign of dying, excepting brief lulls. The valley was filled with its weariless roar, and the cloudless sky grew garish white from myriads of minute, sparkling snow specules. In the afternoon, while I watched the upper fall from the shelter of a big pine tree, it was suddenly arrested in its descent at a point about halfway down and was neither blown upward nor driven aside, but simply held stationary in midair, as if gravitation below that point in the path of its descent had ceased to act. The ponderous flood, weighing hundreds of tons, was sustained, hovering, hesitating, like a bunch of thistledown, while I counted 190. All this time, the ordinary amount of water was coming over the cliff and accumulating in the air, swedging and widening, and forming an irregular cone about 700 feet high, tapering to the top of the wall, the whole standing still, jesting on the invisible arm of the north wind. At length, as if commanded to go on again, scores of arrowy comets shot forth from the bottom of the suspended mass, as if escaping from separate outlets. The brow of El Capitan was decked with long snow streamers like hair. Cloud's rest was fairly enveloped in drifting gossamer elms, and the half-dome loomed up in the garish light like a majestic living creature clad in the same gauzy, wind-woven drapery, while upward currents meeting at times overhead made it smoke like a volcano. An Extraordinary Storm and Flood Glorious as are these rocks and waters, arrayed in storm robes, or chanting rejoicing in everyday dress, they are still more glorious when rare weather conditions meet to make them sing with floods. Only once during all the years I've lived in the valley have I seen it in full flood bloom. In 1871, the early winter weather was delightful. The days all sunshine, the nights all starry and calm. 
calling forth fine crops of frost crystals on the pines and withered ferns and grasses for the morning sunbeams to sift through. In the afternoon of December 16th, when I was sauntering on the meadows, I noticed a massive crimson cloud growing in solitary grandeur above the cathedral rocks, its form scarcely less striking than its colour. It had a picturesque, bulging base like an old sequoia, a smooth, tapering stem, and a bossy, down-curling crown like a mushroom. All its parts were coloured alike, making one mass of translucent crimson. Wondering what the meaning of that strange, lonely red cloud might be, I was up betimes next morning, looking at the weather, but all seemed tranquil as yet. Towards noon, grey clouds with a loose, curly grain like bird's-eye maple began to grow, and late at night rain fell, which soon changed to snow. Next morning, the snow on the meadows was about ten inches deep, and it was still falling in a fine, cordial storm. During the night of the 18th, heavy rain fell on the snow, but as the temperature was 34 degrees, the snow line was only a few hundred feet above the bottom of the valley, and one had only to climb a little higher than the tops of the pines to get out of the rainstorm into the snowstorm. The streams, instead of being increased in volume by the storm, were diminished, because the snow sponged up part of their waters and choked the smaller tributaries. But about midnight, the temperature suddenly rose to 42 degrees, carrying the snow line far beyond the valley walls, and next morning, Yosemite was rejoicing in a glorious flood. The comparatively warm rain falling on the snow was at first absorbed and held back, and so also was that portion of the snow that the rain melted, and all that was melted by the warm wind, until the whole mass of snow was saturated and became sludgy, and at length slipped and rushed simultaneously from a thousand slopes in wildest extravagance, heaping and swelling flood over flood, and plunging into the valley in stupendous avalanches. Awakened by the roar, I looked out, and at once recognized the extraordinary character of the storm. The rain was still pouring in torrent abundance, and the wind at gale speed was doing all it could with the flood-making rain. The section of the north wall visible from my cabin was fairly streaked with new folds, wild roaring singers that seemed strangely out of place. Eager to get into the midst of the show, I snatched a piece of bread for breakfast and ran out. The mountain waters suddenly liberated seemed to be holding a grand jubilee. The two sentinel cascades rivaled the great falls at ordinary stages, and across the valley, by the three brothers, I caught glimpses of more falls than I could readily count while the whole valley throbbed and trembled and was filled with an awful, massive, solemn, sea-like roar. After gazing a while enchanted with the network of new falls that were adorning and transfiguring every rock in sight, I tried to reach the upper meadows where the valley is widest, that I might be able to see the walls on both sides and thus gain general views. But the river was over its banks and the meadows were flooded, forming an almost continuous lake dotted with blue sludgy islands while innumerable streams roared like lions across my path and were sweeping forward rocks and logs with tremendous energy over ground where tiny gillies had been growing but a short time before. Climbing into the talus slopes where these savage torrents were broken among earthquake boulders, I managed to cross them and force my way up the valley to Hutchings Bridge where I crossed the river and waded to the middle of the upper meadow 
Here, most of the new falls were in sight, probably the most glorious assemblage of waterfalls ever displayed from any one standpoint. On that portion of the south wall between Hutchings and the Sentinel, there were ten falls plunging and booming from a height of nearly 3,000 feet, the smallest of which might have been heard miles away. In the neighborhood of Glacier Point, there were six. Between the Three Brothers and Yosemite Fall, nine. Between Yosemite and Royal Arch Falls, ten. From Washington Column to Mount Watkins, ten. On the slopes of Half Dome and Clouds Rest, facing Merrill Lake and Tenaya Canyon, eight. On the shoulder of Half Dome, facing the valley, three. Fifty-six new falls occupying the upper end of the valley, besides a countless host of silvery threads gleaming everywhere. In all the valley, there must have been upwards of a hundred. As if celebrating some great event, falls and cascades in Yosemite costume were coming down everywhere from fountain basins far and near. And though newcomers, they behaved and sang as if they had lived here always. All summer visitors will remember the comet forms of the Yosemite Fall and the laces of the Bridal Veil in Nevada. In the falls of this winter jubilee, the lace forms predominated, but there was no lack of thunder-toned comets. The lower portion of one of the sentinel cascades was composed of two main white torrents with a space between them filled in with chained and beaded gauze of intricate pattern, through the singing threads of which the purplish-gray rock could be dimly seen. The series above Glacier Point was still more complicated in structure, displaying every form that one could imagine water might be dashed and combed and woven into. Those on the north wall between Washington Column and the Royal Arch Fall were so nearly related they formed an almost continuous sheet, and these again were but slightly separated from those about Indian Canyon. The group about the Three Brothers and El Capitan owing to the topography and cleavage of the cliffs back of them, was more broken and irregular. The Tissiac Cascades were comparatively small, yet sufficient to give that noblest of mountain rocks a glorious voice. In the midst of all this extravagant rejoicing, the great Yosemite Fall was scarce heard until about three o'clock in the afternoon. Then I was startled by a sudden, thundering crash, as if a rock avalanche had come to the help of the roaring waters. This was the flood wave of Yosemite Creek, which had just arrived, delayed by the distance it had travelled, and by the choking snows of its widespread fountains. Now, with volume tenfold increased beyond its springtime fullness, it took its place as leader of the glorious choir. And the winds, too, were singing in wild accord, playing on every tree and rock, surging against the huge brows and domes and outstanding battlements, deflected hither and thither, and broken into a thousand cascading, roaring currents in the canyons, and low bass drumming swirls in the hollows. And these again, reacting on the clouds, eroded immense cavernous spaces in their grey depths, and swept forward the resulting detritus in ragged trains like the moraines of glaciers. These cloud movements in turn published the work of the winds, giving them a visible body and enabling us to trace them. As if endowed with independent motion, a detached cloud would rise hastily to the very top of the wall, as if on some important errand, examining the faces of the cliffs, and then perhaps as suddenly descend to sweep imposingly along the meadows, 
trailing its draggled fringes through the pines, fondling the waving spires with infinite gentleness, or gliding behind a grove or a single tree, bringing it into striking relief as it bowed and waved in solemn rhythm. Sometimes as the busy clouds drooped and condensed or dissolved to misty gauze, half of the valley would be suddenly veiled, leaving here and there some lofty headland cut off from all visible connection with the walls. Looming alone, dim, spectral, as if belonging to the sky, visitors like the New Falls come to take part in the glorious festival. Thus for two days and nights in measureless extravagance the storm went on, and mostly without spectators, at least of a terrestrial kind. I saw nobody out, bird, bear, squirrel, or man. Tourists had vanished months before, and the hotel people and laborers were out of sight, careful about getting cold, and satisfied with views from windows. The bears, I suppose, were in their canyon boulder dens, the squirrels in their knothole nests, the grouse in close fir groves, and the small singers in the Indian canyon chaparral trying to keep warm and dry. Strange to say, I did not see even the water oozles, though they must have greatly enjoyed the storm. This was the most sublime waterfall flood I ever saw. Clouds, winds, rocks, waters, throbbing together as one. And then to contemplate what was going on simultaneously with all this in other mountain temples, the big Tuolumne Canyon, how the white waters and the winds were singing there, and in Hetch Hetchy Valley, and the great Kings River Yosemite, and in all the other Sierra canyons and valleys from Shasta to the southernmost fountains of the Kern, thousands of rejoicing flood waterfalls chanting together in jubilee dress. Good night. <laughs>